You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, you're going to tell me that's illegal? Oh, I'm protecting the country. Come at me, bro. And welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Jane Coaston and Dara Lind. Jeff Sessions, of course, uh, as you know, was fired as Attorney General of the United States in the immediate aftermath of the midterms on Wednesday. Except for the purposes of the Vacancies Act, for which purposes he quote-unquote resigned. Indeed. So there's a lot of stuff going on with that, but we're going to set it aside for a minute to talk about some of these Final days legal actions that came out of the Justice Department and the Trump administration, starting with we are here uh, in the studio just at the moment when there is a hot off the presses executive proclamation on asylum. Since we were talking loosely about these subjects before the election, now we get the actual policy and we have Dara here. So what what is the policy? What's the how are how are we keeping ourselves safe from vicious <laughs> asylum seekers? Yeah. So what the Trump administration has done is this morning, Friday morning, Trump signed the same kind of proclamation that he signed to enact the travel bans in 2017. So he's using this very broad portion of the Immigration and Nationality Act that says that the president can suspend the entry of a class of aliens. In order for that to work, though, they had to issue a regulation that went public yesterday, is officially being issued in today's Federal Register, and is effective as of today, which if you're familiar with the federal regulatory process, you know that that is extremely unusual, that usually there has to be a formal like notice and comment period. They are trying to argue that it's exigent enough, essentially, that they didn't need to do that this time. We'll see if that holds up in court. But the regulation kind of said, okay, if someone in theory tried to seek asylum, but were subjected to an executive order under this provision, a presidential proclamation under this provision. In theory, they would not be able to go through the regular asylum screening process, which if you've come to the U.S. without papers and are apprehended by Border Patrol uh, or come to a port of entry, you say you have a fear of being persecuted. You are screened in an interview in which you're supposed to 
show you have a credible fear of persecution. And then if you can meet that credible fear standard, you're allowed to fully apply for asylum, which is a process that can take months or if you're not being detained throughout, it can take years. Uh, this is what's been frustrating the Trump administration. It's what they call catch and release because, you know, once people clear that hurdle, which most people do, they'll be able to stay in the U.S. for a long period of time and the Trump administration can't always detain them. What the regulation issued yesterday and in effect today says is – in theory, if someone were to be covered by a proclamation, instead of going through a, an interview for credible fear, they would have to meet a higher standard. It's called reasonable fear. It's a preponderance of the evidence standard. So it's like more likely than not that you'd be persecuted. And while about 75 percent of people who go through a credible fear interview meet it, 25 percent of people who go through a reasonable fear interview meet that standard. That's probably because right now those reasonable fear interviews are pretty rare and are limited to pretty borderline cases. But it's definitely going to raise the standard for some people. And furthermore, even if people can meet that reasonable fear standard, instead of being eligible for asylum, they would be eligible for these lesser forms of protection that don't allow you to get permanent legal status in the U.S. So like all of this was set up as a hypothetical edifice. And then lo and behold, on Friday morning, right after the Federal Register was officially published, Trump signed an a presidential proclamation saying that anyone who was trying to enter the U.S. between ports of entry uh, and wasn't an unaccompanied child, would for the next 90 days, their entry would be suspended. It would be banned. So the combination of those two things means that most people who are entering between ports of entry, which is the way most asylum seekers try to get into the United States right now because their ports of entry are backed up, will be kind of shunted into this process that is more restrictive, gives them fewer options at the end, and makes it more likely that they'll be summarily deported if they flunk the initial screening. And so what what happens, like, when you're summarily deported? Like, if you come up from Guatemala, you're there between ports of entry, yep. somebody picks you up, they put you to the screening, you don't meet the new higher bar. Like, what What does that mean? I mean, that means that you're treated the same way as most people who are apprehended crossing into the U.S., right? It's worth bearing in mind that the whole, like, asylum credible fear system was built to be an exception to the rule, right? The right. rule is if you come to the U.S. without papers and you're apprehended, you are going to get deported without a court hearing. Like, that's standard issue. It, mm -hmm. It's unlike being apprehended if you're living in the U.S. The only exception to that is if you say that you have a fear of persecution. So, like, usually people aren't automatically given an interview at all. It's something that they kind of have to access by saying they have a fear of persecution or, in theory, Border Patrol is supposed to ask them. But this is this is when Trump said in one of these rambling yeah. things I've heard him say, they're coached by the lawyers. They say the magic right. words. And then when he is positing, right, like his theory – of the case is that it used to be that people would try to sneak in between the ports of entry and if they got caught, they would get deported immediately. Yeah. But they have learned from these lawyers yes. that you can use the magic words, I have a fear, yes. and that that earns you the right to an initial screening. It's relatively easy to pass the initial screening. And then you wait for a court date and you wait a long time. So this is the loophole. Right. Right. When Trump, so, right, so the picture that they are trying to paint, right, yes. is one in which 
old-fashioned, I'm going to sneak across the border and hope they don't catch me, has like gone out of style in favor of new school. I'm going to have a BS story about persecution. I'm going to be in the interior of the country awaiting a court date. Yes. And then maybe I just don't show up for it. And right. so we are we are closing that loophole by saying people are going to come and we're going to bounce the bulk of them really quickly, just like we used to with single men coming to work. Right. Absolutely. The idea that there is systemic fraud in the asylum system is pretty widespread throughout the Trump administration. If you ask them, uh, what is your evidence of systemic fraud? Usually the first thing they'll point to is, well, most of the people who pass this initial screening don't ultimately have their asylum claims approved. Usually... You have to have a higher bar for, like, asylum fraud is a legitimate crime. Like, you can get federally charged for that. You do not automatically get charged with asylum fraud just if your application gets denied. So, like, their kind of rhetorical argument that there are these dirty immigration lawyers who are coaching people to evade the system has not been documented to the extent that one could kind of take it as for is a given is kind of what I'll say. Right. You know, there is this broader resource problem of the laws and the current funding that is given to CBP is built for credible fear and all that being the exception to the rule. This does raise the fun question, okay, so is the system that they're actually setting up going to be less of a less of an involved process? And the answer to that is Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, to a certain extent, it appears to be a bargaining chip with Mexico to see if they can get them to sign uh, an agreement that would allow the U.S. to reject literally everyone who had traveled through Mexico before asking for asylum. It does kind of appear to be a certain, like, this is the thing we can do, so we're doing it. Trump told us to fix this problem, so we're fixing it. Wait, but what, so what, what's this Mexico issue? Let's, let's explain <laughs> that. No, I mean, I, I think this yeah. is important. No, I, I would love to talk about say, third country. So, like— to be, and this is not unfamiliar to anyone who has listened to the weeds over the last several months, when we talk about particularly asylum seekers, but really people coming into the U.S. Uh, through Mexico generally, we are less likely to be talking about Mexicans than we are Guatemalans, Hondurans, Salvadorans. That means that those people are going through Mexico as the like famous caravan is right now. They set off from Mexico City today. They're currently in central Mexico. It also means that some of them are seeking asylum in Mexico, including several former members of the caravan. So, The U.S.-Mexico relationship has been defined for the last several years largely on this question of what do we do about these people coming through your country to get to our country. The Trump administration, which never sees a carrot it can't turn into a stick, has decided that the right answer is to kind of cram down Mexico's throat this agreement that would basically say no Central American migrant can get asylum in the U.S. Mexico, this is your problem now. It's not clear exactly how the U.S. would be helping Mexico, like, absorb or repatriate those people. Right. It, like, it does not appear to be the case that Mexico has any inclination to sign this. But the administration is holding this out as, okay, this proclamation we just signed may not be in effect for the full 90 days because maybe Mexico will give us everything we want. But the picture here, right, is that like the bulk of the refugees from the Syrian civil war are in Turkey because Turkey is adjacent to Syria. And if somebody flees Venezuela, they are most likely going to go to Colombia because Colombia is adjacent to Venezuela. Costa Rica. Right. Yeah. But but I mean, the, the, the basic picture, right, is that like if you are in Guatemala, and you, like, pick up to flee for your life, right. you're going to get to Mexico. Yes. And when you are in Mexico, you are not being persecuted by the government of Guatemala since 
You're not yes. in Guatemala. And so like in a, in a basic – like if, if for whatever reason at any point in history, you know, Guatemala had a civil war, which I believe happened in the, in the 50s, like they're refugees. And where refugees go in a civil war is the countries that are next to the country that they're fleeing because it's there just like obviously after the revolution, people fled Cuba. They came to the United States because right. the United States is close to Cuba, right? So I mean that's like – the vision here, that's, right? Yeah, is that like totally the is that like bona fide refugees should be in ten cities in southern Mexico or whatever? Right. It's it, yeah. And this is not. And like, what? Why is this America's problem? Right. This is definitely kind of the picture that is being painted. It's just that international law doesn't allow you to say unilaterally. We have decided that you could have stayed in Mexico right. instead, right? Like it's allowed you can you can consider it a negative factor when somebody's making an asylum claim, but you don't get to say, well, we have decided that you had this better option, and so we're gonna you know we're gonna force you to do it unless I mean, Mexico agrees. So you what they're doing instead is kind of this. They're not restricting asylum entirely. They're saying, well, as long as you're willing to go to ports of entry, as long as you don't break our law first, sure. right? Which it doesn't force the question of well you should have stayed you should have been safe in mexico in an explicit way what it does instead is in practice require people to if they want to get asylum wait at ports of entry for several weeks which means they're going to have to wait for it stay in mexico now i mean you could imagine a like alternate universe trump administration right in which they call up the mexican government and they're like hey it is really important to us to not have large numbers of additional immigrants from Latin America. We feel that Mexico has like a comparative advantage in the resettlement of Spanish-speaking Latin American people being a Spanish-speaking Latin American country. And so let's talk about like, what can we do for you, Mexico? Yeah, I, I would I, – I, you and I and certain wonks throughout D.C. have a fantasy of a regionalist approach to this. Right. But I mean not... it's, it's just part of what's interesting, right, is that the Trump administration has been doing like – Literally the opposite of that, right? Like on, on other issues, like you might have said to Mexico, probably Mexico would like some changes to NAFTA that would make it more favorable to Mexico. And maybe we could yeah. give you that and in exchange, you could help us out with this Guatemala problem, right? But instead, it's been like the opposite where like they like put the screws to Mexico to get some changes to the treatment of car parts and, and all this other stuff in NAFTA. And now it's like, let's put the screws on Again, right? It's like this is like Trump's vision of the art of the deal is that nothing nothing is ever win-win, right? Like yeah. there, there are no positive sum bargains in Trump world. There's just the idea that the United States it's, – it's like, you know, it's like a bad neighbor policy, right? Like we're stronger than Mexico. So every time we want something, we're going to lean on Mexico. But because this is Jeff Sessions week, I also want to talk about Jeff Sessions' role in this, right? Like we're talking about this as if this is a like – homeland security, foreign policy kind of thing, the development of this policy was housed in the DOJ, pretty close hold. It had its roots in a policy that I've been reporting on for a while. This was originally supposed to be part of a much broader, regular kind of regulation, like the sort that you post and has the notice and comment period and all of that, uh, yes. that was originally drafted in super radical form that would have essentially barred anyone from Central America from getting asylum. Then clawed back a little bit and was being worked on in early October, which is to say that, like, the timeline on this is definitely because of the caravan. Like, 110 percent, this 
does appear to be a Trump administration officials, starting with the president himself, have been freaked out by the continued increase in families coming through. And the caravan focused a lot of that and forced a what are we doing immediately. But it also means that, like, they had this thing to work from that was being developed by lawyers who understood to a certain extent, what's the way we can do this and not just be straight up telling line officers to violate the law? Mm -hmm. Like, that's an important thing to note because there is going to be litigation on this. And I would be shocked personally if this isn't put on hold at some point by a federal injunction. But... The way that this was done wasn't just smash and grab, nope, we're not taking them anymore. It was something that was worked through hastily, but through an existing regulatory process by the kinds of people who Jeff Sessions has set up with a mandate to be as harsh on immigration enforcement as possible, but find ways in the law that you can do it. So this was professional, not like Steve Bannon after three drinks. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean— I assume that there are going to be TikToks who can probably speak to this more than I can. And I think it's it would be irresponsible to kind of overstate the professionalism here. It was pretty clearly driven by, like, we want to get this done ASAP. You may recall that Donald Trump was supposed to have a big asylum speech on the Tuesday before the election. Uh, That did not happen, but it didn't happen partially because he was in Pittsburgh instead that day. But it was going to be a rollout of this policy. This was actually originally supposed to be, we have to get this done before the election. Okay. Now pivot a little bit. we're going to pivot so that poor Jane can speak. I'm so sorry. Never apologize. We had had another midnight order out of the Justice Department. And it's it's just so exciting. It it was so interesting, and I, I pointed this out before the show, that at the same time that people were marching, essentially in Times Square and other public places, basically saying that firing Sessions puts uh, Robert Mueller's job in jeopardy and that's bad. But it's interesting how when we talk about Jeff Sessions in the context of the Mueller investigation, we're talking about a different Jeff Sessions than the Jeff Sessions who, for instance, last night signed an order that would uh, dramatically limit the ability of law enforcement officials to use court-enforced agreements known as consent decrees to help overhaul local police departments. And consent decrees have a pretty long history. Um, They were used in the early 90s in Pittsburgh. And basically the idea is that it's a type of injunction that allows a federal court to enforce an agreement that's negotiated between, say, the Justice Department and, say, the Chicago Police Department, which would be a particular example to which Sessions was very deeply opposed because he believed that if you don't let the police have, you know, extra judicial powers that who knows what might happen. And so they have now, the Justice Department has limited those agreements in a couple of different ways. One of them is that now they have to be signed off on by a uh, political appointee, and it's not just the career lawyers who are generally in charge of this. And another is just kind of making it more complicated to either enter into these types of agreements. You know, it can't just be for police departments breaking the law. And so they have to lay out evidence of additional violations besides unconstitutional behavior, which, you know, you would think that the violation that is unconstitutional behavior by a police department would be enough, but apparently not. And that the deals have to have a sunset date. So you have to say that, like, this deal will go away on July 5th, 2020, instead of saying, like, you know, 
when the Ferguson Police Department stops using citizens of Ferguson, Missouri as bank accounts, that's when we'll lift this agreement. And so it's interesting because, um, you know, I wrote about this a little bit during the Kanye explosion um, that there is – and I think that this goes to something about Jeff Sessions in particular, that since the beginning of the Trump administration, there's been Donald Trump and then there's been the Trump administration. And so while Donald Trump has been yelling about how Jeff Sessions is terrible and not adequately protective of him, Jeff Sessions has just kept on going with kind of following what the Trump administration's version of the law is. And I think that there's you know there's a saying like, you know, for my friends, everything, for everyone else, the law. And so you saw that criminal justice reform really took a backseat in the eyes of Jeff Sessions because he believed that criminal justice reform was basically being mean to police officers, even while, you know, Jared Kushner was working across the aisle in a lot of ways to attempt to get criminal justice reform on the table. And you heard, you know, before the elections that Mitch McConnell was like, oh, you know, if we get 60 votes for this, we can get this happening, which means it's not going to happen. But it is interesting how one of Sessions's last acts was to ensure that police departments have less oversight and that it has less local ability. Now, keep in mind, a lot of these agreements are locally agreed upon. And so Jeff Sessions essentially said, like, no, the federal government can tell you that you, you cannot enter into these specific locally agreed upon agreements. I know that's the word agree a lot, but that's the only way to say it. But it's interesting, and I think someone, um, the former head of the Civil Rights Division of DOJ said that, you know, Jeff Sessions always always claimed to love federalism, and yet at this point he's like, big government, it's great. What I particularly love about this is, like, of all the things that Jeff Sessions has done, his stuff on policing it's, it's, has often seemed a little less systematic because, like, it's been at the level of, like, not defending particular consent decrees like right. the one in Chicago. This seems kind of like uh, – He's on his way out saying, I'm going to make sure that just in case somebody comes in who isn't as assiduously devoted to restricting federal oversight of police as I am, that they couldn't do anything about it anyway. Right. And it's interesting because I think that one of the major consent agreements people have been talking about is Chicago, but there was also a consent agreement that was in Louisiana because the Louisiana police departments, I believe it was specifically Baton Rouge, but if you know more, please send more information. There have been a lot of issues with those police departments, but it's really interesting. And um, Heather McDonald wrote a piece about this. Now, Heather McDonald uh, wrote a book. Author of the War on Cops. Yes. um, There has never been an agent of the state to which Heather McDonald is not deeply devoted. But it's interesting how her positioning of Jeff Sessions and the Jeff Sessions firing was so based on like, but law enforcement loved him. He was just trying to follow the law. And it, it, I think it goes to your point, Dar, about how the Sessions Justice Department, you know, while, you know, you saw a little bit with other uh, branches of the federal government that it was just kind of a more Leroy Jenkins approach to this, the Sessions Justice Department very much was, okay, you know, we are going to do this thing, but we are going to do it within the quote-unquote letter of the law and at such an extent that it seems more subtle, but it's actually worse. But also, I mean, the basic problem with Jeff Sessions, right, is like when you look at the Trump cabinet, right, there's like some different kinds of characters in there, right? And so you have a guy like Steve Mnuchin who nobody ever knew what Steve Mnuchin thought about anything, right? Like he was like a total cipher who clearly had been – trying to get somewhere in Republican politics. And so he he took a bet on Donald Trump in the 2016 campaign when there weren't a lot of people on Wall Street who wanted to raise funds for him. And like now he's Treasury Secretary and who knows why, 
right? And Jeff Sessions is the opposite of that, right? Like Jeff Sessions had a policy agenda that was outlined in quite a bit of detail long before Donald Trump was running for president. And then what Trump started groping toward was similar to Jeff Sessions's agenda. So when Sessions backed Trump, that was seen as a significant moment because no other senators were backing Trump, but nobody was confused, right? When like Steve Mnuchin started backing Trump, a lot of people were like, what? Like, what are you doing here? But like when Sessions backed Trump, it was totally obvious what he was doing. Right? He, he even was, said it in the speech. He was the first member of the Senate to endorse Trump. And he says in the speech that he gives where he put on a MAGA hat right. and is just so excited about it, he talks about the specifics that, that you're going at. Like that was why he got on board. Right. right. And so, so this is, you know, worth noting, not only good for sessions in like now having an avatar, but also good for Trump insofar as he then is able to put forth some policy proposals that are way outside the Republican mainstream, but are being developed by members of Sessions' staff, most notably Stephen Miller. But also, I mean, this is when we'll get to this after the break and Sessions firing. Like, this is also the problem with Sessions in the Trump cabinet is that Jeff Sessions was actually there for a reason. Right. right? That and wasn't like, necessarily and like, Donald you don't Trump's like loyalty. It. Like, I don't approve of Jeff Sessions' reasons, but I never thought – I didn't think when Jeff Sessions signed on as a Trump endorser. I didn't think when Sessions went on to be attorney general. I didn't think when Sessions was scrambling to scuttle the 2013 immigration compromise. Like, Jeff Sessions wasn't bullshitting. Like, this is really what he thinks and he believes in it quite – seriously and is very committed and was committed to it when it was very politically unfashionable and was like to his good fortune that it became more fashionable in Republican circles. But like what Trump really wants is people who will just do stuff for him. Right. Not someone who will – Sessions was riding the Trump wave in order to promulgate these rules and rescind consent agreements and get some people in place who understand the plumbing of asylum law and want to try to turn the screws to make it harder for people to get in. Like, he he had his reasons. But so then he was reluctant to just go way off script and do what Trump wanted in terms of screwing around with the FBI. Yes. A tidbit of gossip that was interesting to me when it came out on Wednesday. And now that what's happened over the last 24 hours has happened, you guys will now understand why it was so interesting to me and that I think will set us up for the conversation after the break. It was reported on Wednesday that when John Kelly went to Jeff Sessions on Wednesday morning and said, you're leaving today, Sessions said, please let me stay the week. And Kelly said, nope, I'm sorry, it has to be today. And so Sessions submitted his undated resignation letter and went out the building. And looking at that, Knowing that they were looking to get this out in the last few days, and now they have, knowing that this has really been the baby of Sessions' DOJ much more than Christine Nielsen's DHS, it's very interesting to me that Sessions wanted to be able to stay through the day that Trump signed this proclamation and that he was denied the ability to do that. With that, time for a break. Yes. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. 
With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. So something I want to get at yeah. is, you know, I think that in, when we're talking about Jeff Sessions and we're talking about, you know, if you were a conservative who is a quote unquote law and order conservative, and I hate using that term because a lot of these people are just very much like, you know, they're not. It's more order than it's, law. It's, more, it's a lot of order and a lot, not that much law. But the idea that your positionality in the Trump administration is supposed to be transactional. And I think that that's what we were getting at before the break, which is this idea that, you know, Jeff Sessions was there because Jeff Sessions had things he was interested in doing besides just serving Donald Trump. Whereas, you know, you've seen people who get close to Trump. I think about this with all kind of the random hangers on within the conservative movement. And by conservative movement, I mean, like, not the people who write for like National Review or Weekly Standard, but the people who seem to have like gotten on board the Trump train within the last 18 months. But you see this idea that he likes them because they like him and they can do something for him. So he might do things for them. It's a very like like in the movie Chicago, like what you do for mama, mama will do for you. And yet Jeff Sessions was never going to be a part of that. And, you know, when he recused himself from the Russia investigation because of you know his past conflicts, it was Trump's idea of what an attorney general is supposed to be. It was very much based on what he thought Eric Holder was. And his idea of Eric Holder was someone who defended the president first and foremost. And that's something you, you hear a lot on the right, the idea that, you know, with Fast and Furious or this idea of the, the, the assorted scandals that conservatives saw within the, the Obama administration, they viewed Eric Holder as the person who basically like stood in front of Obama and like made sure that nothing got to him, which is why they think that a lot of people, when, you know, people are like, oh, it was like scandal-free administration. They're like, no, 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 there were lots of scandals. They just never got to Obama. Trump wants what that version of an attorney general is. Whether or not that is actually how it happened is not important, but his idea that 
Jeff Sessions was supposed to basically just not be there for what he wanted to do, not be there because, you know, he'd been fighting about Gang of Eight back in 2013, not be there because this is something, you know, the issues upon which he focused happened to align with the issues Trump talked about, and thus they would have this great working relationship. He should have been there to defend Trump, and that should have been the whole deal. He should have been basically his personal attorney. Right, and so now we have acting attorney general – Matthew Whitaker, who I don't quite know what to say about Matthew Whitaker. He appears to be a a small-time crook uh, involved in some kind of multi-level marketing scams. He uh, finished fourth in an Iowa Senate primary at one point. He worked at some kind of conservative think tank that I never heard of where he did like op-eds about Benghazi. And he appears to have become chief of staff in the Justice Department because he did some cable news hits about the Mueller investigation, saying right. that it was overreaching and that it should be shut down. Now, and, and when we say appears to, it's not. this is not like, oh, there is a conspiracy theory. This is like no one has yet put forward an alternative theory of how Matthew Whitaker came to the attention of the Trump administration. Which is interesting because now, you know, just a couple of minutes ago before we started recording, Donald Trump basically went with the full Mariah Carey, I don't know her right. excuse about being like, I don't know who this person is when we have clear evidence. But I mean, to be clear, did. I feel like Trump often does a good job of like dragging people into yeah. like questioning reality. But like normally what happens, right? If the head of a cabinet department goes, it's not legally required that you make the deputy be the acting, but just like that's normally what you do for like obvious reasons, right? Like in any organization you've ever heard of, if the number one guy leaves, the number two guy typically yeah. steps up. Now, there's also provision. Some other people could do it. There's a number three person. There's a number four person in the Justice Department. There's a lot of people. To reach around all of those people and get a guy who doesn't hold a Senate-confirmed job, who seemed like a weird choice for the mid-list job that he has, like, is just weird. You can say that, like, well, Whitaker is bad because he's going to compromise the Mueller probe, which I guess is, like, an official worry people are going with. But actually, if you set Mueller aside, he's just obviously a poor choice, right? Like, he's a good choice if you focus on the Mueller situation and you want the Mueller probe shut down. But, like, if you just don't talk about Mueller and you just put him aside the other people working in the Justice Department, he just doesn't seem remotely— qualified, you know, and it's a real signpost that like even on these justice issues, which like supposedly are like at the core of Trumpist policy and politics, like Trump is really worried about Donald Trump. Right. You know, like he is – I don't want to say like – he don't paint too dark a picture, but like this is not – a good way to run an efficient Justice Department that pursues the Trump policy agenda in, like, a rigorous, disciplined, and effective manner, right? Yeah. Like, you could get Noel Francisco to do that. Right. And uh, just a, a side note, when we're talking about people finding themselves in situations where they ne- should not necessarily be, one fun fact about Matthew Whitaker is that he played tight end for Iowa's Rose Bowl team in 1991, a Rose Bowl team that somehow was also finished 8-3, and three, mm. which is another example of just people finding themselves in high-level positions that maybe they shouldn't have really gotten to in the first place. It's like winning the Electoral College without the popular vote. Oh, good mm. point, Matt. Mm. Mm. So the thing about... 
Matt Whitaker is clearly on one side of a spectrum where, you know, if you, you can go from Noel Francisco to Matt Whitaker in terms of like relevant experience to running things and commitment to the policy agenda versus does Donald Trump think you'll have his back? There are lots of people who are some point in the middle, though. And this is where the question of what the Trump administration looks like after Sessions becomes really interesting to me, because it's not like Jeff Sessions was running the DOJ as, you know, a completely top-down, like, everybody from Sessions down was just automatons fulfilling Sessions' orders. And it's also not like the White House hasn't had people who have been involved in shaping policy as well. So what I'm trying to figure out is— does a post-Sessions kind of policymaking apparatus look like Jeff Sessions is still, you know, like he's secured his legacy, he's still the ghost in the machine, enough of the people who are there were his staffers or had ties to him before Trump, they share his vision, they share his expertise, they're going to try to make sure that something is built to last, or are we looking at the Leroy Jenkins phase of the Trump administration? Thank you, Jane, for that like totally apt reference where it's people just like while the plan is being devised, running in and trying to shoot blindly and getting killed. Exactly. It's a fantastic reference. We're totally <laughs> putting this in show notes. Exactly. Um, yes. So I, I don't even know what to say. Every time like anything happens in America, I think you get like hot takes spun up about the unique political genius of Donald Trump and his like bond with his base and how he helped Republicans win a Senate race in like fucking North Dakota or whatever. And then something like this happens. And I think you're like back to baseline reality, right? Which is like there is nothing that Donald Trump is doing for the conservative movement or for Republican Party politics that could not be done by a person who does not have like massive corruption scandals hanging over his head, who creates whole multi-day news cycles about his subverting of his own administration's efficacy because he's trying to dig his way out of one of these scandals. Like, it's like, it's just not true. Right. You know what I mean? Like, like anybody could do this stuff. Like, get 46% of the vote. Like, that's something. Get, like, read a Federalist Society list of judges and submit them to the Senate. And it's like, to me, a like staggering ongoing element of American politics is like, Trump's, like, negative value over replacement presidency, right? Yeah. Like, we're right in here, like, midterms, they didn't do very well for Republicans. They were, like, desperately coming up with this spin about how, like, secretly is good to lose the yeah. House, maybe. He's, like, shitting on Mia Love for no reason. And then this, like, yeah. it's just, it's, it's, it's like, it's bad work. It's he has like it's, very low VORP. Um, right. But something I want to get to, I think that that's a really important point because I think um, there have been a couple of conservatives who brought this up this past week, that the midterms – now, I think first and foremost, a lot of people seem to have written their midterms takes at like 9.45 p.m. Eastern on Tuesday. Y'all, where, real talk, this election has convinced me that live results are going to steer you wrong, that like, they are bad for your brain. And no, I, I know that this is against my material interest as a journalist at a web outlet, and I'm sure I'm going to get – if I am never on another Reads again, it's because I've gotten fired for saying this. But like, oh my goodness. See, I did, did this watching right. the live results. No, like 538 Walker. nearly killed people on Tuesday, like with the just like, oh, like there's like 30 percent chance the Democrats win the House or something. Anyway, we are now up to like over 30 seats flipped. Like it's been a pr- – it was a pretty successful midterms for Democrats. But – I think 
a couple of conservatives I saw raised this point that basically instead of Trump being this like wild phenomenon of magic and it's interesting because there was like a political piece that basically you said like is does he have like magical powers and I'm like no no he's just some dude that basically it's a revert to the norm of politics and like for example you know that maybe actually it was Obama who was this kind of like stunning norm breaker who could win Ohio which is actually like a pretty red state or who could do these things that were just different politically and that you saw in the midterms that like all of the states that Trump won in 2016, Trump very much did not win in 2018. And, you know, he went to Montana four times and John Tester still won. Like you see again that the story of Trump being this like crazy norm breaker is actually the story of American politics reverting back to a norm that, you know, it turns out Pennsylvania is pretty blue. Ohio is pretty red. Missouri is pretty red. But, you know, you can – pick up wins in down-ballot areas in Indiana and Georgia if you're a Democrat who runs a smart local campaign. And it's so interesting because I think that because Trump is very good at making everything about him, if we had this conversation, and I've often thought, again, in terms of things that would actually not work for my actual job, if we talked about 2018 Republicans without ever mentioning Donald Trump, we would be talking about, like, in terms of where it holds power, we're talking about a party that is very similar to the Republicans I remember growing up in Ohio in 2004. And it's interesting to see how I'm not going to say regressing, but we are reverting back to a norm that existed before 2008. Maybe, but I think it's negative. I mean, look, Republicans managed to talk a lot about Democrats in deep red states who lost their Senate election. But like Dean Heller lost in a swing state. It looks like Nevada Mark, got and right, Nevada yeah, yeah, Republicans and Nevada got and Colorado right. My goodness. really don't look like purple well, they, states they anymore. They turned very blue. But I right. think like Martha McSally, like in Arizona, you had a Republican who is a woman who sued the Bush administration to win the legal right to be the first female combat pilot. Like, that is, I think, the best candidate biography that anybody will ever have for a race anywhere. And it looks like she's going to lose to a former Green Party activist who then refashioned herself as a blue dog and then tried In to— post-blue dog And, and then tried to re-refashion herself as a progressive when that became unfashionable and who lost 2 percent of the vote to the Green Party candidate who— Like, that's in Arizona, which is, like, not a liberal state. And, like, I don't know who you can possibly blame for Martha McSally not crushing Kristen Cinema, other than Donald Trump being a clown. Right. So, like, I, I, I don't like. I don't know what else you can say about that. And like, maybe it's all to the good, right? Like, there are more midwestern states than there are southwestern states. Uh, you know, by the numbers. So, losing Colorado, Nevada, and Arizona in order to pick up like the whole Rust Belt is like not a crazy political calculation. But you know, anyway. I mean, this is back to Matthew Whitaker. It's just like, who does this help, right? Like, this is like Donald Trump is a is a leech on the conservative movement in America much more than he is like a beating, circulating heart that gives it life. And it's weird to me how conservatives have gotten, I think, intimidated into 
denying that. But like they are laboring every day to like keep this ship afloat. (laughs) While Trump is like, sure, like he mostly rows in their direction. But like every couple of weeks, he just like throws an oar at somebody's head. I feel like I can answer this question by tying in what you were just talking about, Matt, about the like Arizona versus Rust Belt into the broader conversation. Because like the entire political theory of Trumpism is that Donald Trump is is bringing people out to vote who would otherwise be low propensity because they're white voters without college degrees, which is to say Donald Trump is making low information voters interested enough in politics to show up to the polls. Donald Trump himself is – I don't know who said this, but it's perfect. He's the first low-information voter president. Like Donald Trump will routinely say things that make it clear that he could not have cared less about policy or politics before running for president. Most recently, he was like, oh, nobody ever paid any attention to the midterms and now yeah. it's like midterms. <laughs> it's this big thing. It's like – no. That's not true of anyone else except for Donald Trump and maybe some Trump voters. Like maybe that is legitimately true. And so in that respect, having Donald Trump as the president, it's not that he's a political genius. It's just that he's a good one-man focus group for what people are going to be into. And so the things that break through to those voters aren't necessarily the like – regulations that Jeff Sessions is publishing in the Federal Register. They're these big, flashy moves to own the libs. And, you know, people may not be paying obsessive attention to politics, but they're getting their signals about what to care about from people who do pay obsessive attention to politics and care a great deal about owning the libs. Right. That's not just the Matt Whitaker stuff. That also is some policy stuff. Like, you can say, I'm going to do this big, brash you know, shutting down the borders kind of move on asylum, you know, like that is, oh, you're going to tell me that's illegal. Oh, I'm protecting the country. Come at me, bro. Like there definitely are ways that you can get a session style agenda in these very brash Trumpian terms. And so what's going to be interesting is seeing if that temptation pulls enough that it results in things that are just flash and no substance, or whether you kind of continue to toe this middle ground of we're going to find the things that are actually going to matter that also will make a noise for owning the libs. But something I would I want to point out, um, and it's something I've argued a lot, is that, you know, and I wrote about this, I think, before the Vox Times, is that there were a lot of people who believed in a thing called Trumpism, among them Jeff Sessions, among them, you know, some of the earliest members of the Trump administration who believed that Trumpism existed apart from Trump. Trump never believed that. Trump recognized that this is all about him and what he wants to do and that his random, you know, flailing at health care for everyone or being a dove or something like that was just saying things the time that sounded good in his head. Jeff Sessions believed in a version of Trumpism that was about immigration restrictionism and putting America first and et cetera, et cetera. And now Jeff Sessions has been fired from the Trump administration. You know, one of the earliest and biggest supporters of a thing that people believed called Trumpism, the people over the Journal for American Greatness, the Michael Antons of the world who believe that this was a thing, this is a phenomenon they could get on board with. And then you saw that when the bombings in Syria, you saw a lot of these people start to recognize like, oh, there was no such thing as Trumpism. There was just Trump this whole time. And I think it's interesting to see how with the midterms, the people who really attempted to mold themselves into Trumpian figures 
it turns out not only is it just about Trump, it is only about Trump on the ballot because you saw candidates in uh, South Carolina with Mark Sanford who lost and the person who Trump really supported, Katie Arrington, who basically became like the Trumpian figure in that race, she lost. And you saw a time and time again that candidates who did not already have their kind of their own energy, their own oxygen, but who just basically turned themselves into their version of what they thought Trump was. I mean, you saw this a little bit with Corey Stewart, who basically, you know, in recent weeks was attempting to seem less Trumpian, but no one really bought it because he's a neo-Confederate from Minnesota. You see that it doesn't work if you're not Trump and that Trump is Trumpism. And so it's been fascinating to see as the Republican House members who remain, I think McKay Coppins wrote a piece on this this week for The Atlantic talking about, you know, the, the most Trumpy people will remain while a lot of the the people who were even cha- – who were challenging Trump or kind of thinking apart from Trump, you know, have either retired or they lost their elections, which is why that they were very mad about never Trumpers saying to vote for Democrats because they were like, no, we're just going to lose all the good Republicans. But – the idea that Trumpism is a separate entity from Trump himself, I think, right. has been shown to be a falsehood. But I think it's also, I mean, back to, you know, Sessions and Whitaker, it's, there's an incredible lowering of the bar, yes. I think, that happens around Trump, not just for conduct, but for, for policy, right? Like, I don't know what you guys were doing in November 2010, but like, I do not recall any liberals looking at those election results and then saying, well, it's fine that our whole legislative agenda is now dead forever because we can still appoint circuit court judges, right? Like it was true and Obama confirmed a lot of circuit court judges and this was consequential. Like eventually the control of a majority of circuits flipped thanks to Obama's appointees post-2010. Like it was a real thing. Like being, being president matters. But losing the House was, was really bad. You know, like, that's why, like, all this stuff, like climate change legislation, immigration reform, like, if Democrats had held a very razor-thin House majority, they would have gotten a comprehensive immigration reform bill done. Maybe, I mean, maybe not, but very plausibly. But, like, the reason they couldn't do it is that they lost control of the House. Like, that's a really big deal. And then again, even if you only care about immigration, right, like, you know, Immigration activists were not satisfied with what Obama was able to do through executive action on immigration policy because to make really big changes, you need to pass laws. And like it's the same in reverse. If you went back four years ago, five years ago, right, restrictionists like Stephen Miller was not saying, my dream is that someday – my vision will take over the Republican Party, will seize power nationally, and as a result, the number of Central American asylum seekers admitted into the interior of the country pending a hearing will decline, right? Like it's a much more ambitious agenda and they're not doing anything to get toward those goals. Like you keep thinking about it. Like there was this time when it was like, okay, we're going to revoke DACA and then we're going to use that as leverage and then we're going to get something. So, okay, that like that made sense, right? And then you're like, okay, what do you what do you want, Donald Trump? And they were like, here's a fucking phone book full of stuff that we want. And so Donald Trump was like, no, we're not going to give you that. Right. And then it went to court, and then they lost their leverage, and now they're like standing and now around Trump's admitting that they lost their leverage, which is hilarious. Right. But, and so yeah, it's like, I mean, it's like is, what are you doing? But this it's is like, actually a really instructive point because when we talk about 
whether people in the Trump White House know anything, there are two different axes of that, right? right. Like there are people in the Trump White House who understand the policy areas and, and through the executive branch, who understand the policy areas that they're working on, but who have no idea how Congress works. And yeah. then there are people who may have an idea how Congress works but don't have particular ideas about policy and may or may not understand that the galaxy brain stuff going on in the policy side of the shop isn't the best way and most effective way to go about things. Like Obama got some crap for not having people in his White House who were, you know, for not doing enough to butter up that Congress a lot of the time. Yes. Donald Trump makes Barack Obama look like LBJ. Like yes. there's just – so it's kind of worth considering, you know, we have two to six more years of this administration. Like, oh, my God. There's going to continue to be turnover. It's very uh, It's not like people are going to suddenly decide that they're going to stick it out for the duration. So is the Trump administration going to level up in its legislative tacticians? Is it going to level up in some of its policy stuff? Is it going to, like, try to replace the institutional knowledge that Jeff Sessions has? Or is it just going to continue to circle into whoever is close to Trump at that time gets gets higher up? Right. Like it, it continued kind of leeching up of the Mike Pompeo model. I think it's interesting because I think that there was a moment I remember it was, you know, thousands of years ago, it was 2017, yeah. where there was this conversation that like, oh, you know, there could be work across the aisle on this infrastructure air bill. And it's coming they, back. See my article today. Oh, I, I'm so excited. But there's an idea of Trump in which he becomes this person who starts making deals. Yes. Except we have never actually seen that Trump. We have never seen the Trump who was just like, yeah, I, you know, I'm going to bring in Schumer and Pelosi. And I remember when they had that meeting in the Oval Office and there was like, yeah, we can work on some things. And yeah. it never happened. Well, they reached an agreement and then they just scuttled it. Yeah. And it's interesting to me because I feel as if, you know, Dara, you were talking about like, you know, where will they find the institutional knowledge? And I'm just like, oh, this version of Trump would be so interesting to see. Because, I mean, I, I made the point on Twitter that like there's a version of Trump who makes deals and who does the populist thing and who kind of runs as like, you know, a Huey Long for 2018 and talks a lot about infrastructure and the actual solutions for the opioid crisis. And he had this whole thing this week about like, I've got a solution to abortion and I just won't tell you what it is. But this, there's an idea of Trump in which this is a real thing that can happen. And I'm looking at you, Dara, and I'm thinking, no. Right, no, like we're only not. two years into the Trump administration and we're already so bored with the actual Trump administration that we're inventing these alternate universe Trump administrations right. that are more interesting. It's true. But I do kind of think that, yeah, the, the fact that we have a president who says he has a secret plan to fight abortion and meanwhile is bragging to all of his buddies and, and having them brag to the press that he knows exactly how he's going to deal with the incoming House majority because he's going to turn these young progressives against Nancy Pelosi and they'll never know what's coming. It is not what you would expect of an administration that understands its weakness either on policy or on legislation. Oh, then what an administration that would be that understood its weaknesses. Uh, yeah, I guess we've depressed ourselves enough that we should probably wrap up for the week. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, so if we understand our, our own weaknesses for podcasting, and I hope that you join us in that. I hope you check out the Weeds Facebook group if you would like to continue the discussion there. Thanks, uh, Jane and Dara. Thanks to our producer, Griffin Tanner. Thanks to our sponsors. And the Weeds will return on Tuesday.
What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.